0: really in the middle of uh, these judgments being poured out upon the world. And as you know, the book of Revelation is more than just about, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a prophetic account of more than just God's wrath and God's judgment. I mean, when, you, when people think about the book of Revelation, uh, they think about these apocalyptic events that that. Um, truly Hollywood has tried to depict in many different ways that uh, really leaves people in a place of fear and confusion and lack of understanding in regards to what really is going to happen and really what God is like. And um, we are in the midst of some of these uh, apocalyptic things that that are going to take place in in chapter 9. But like I said, the, the book is really a book of the end of all things. And if you keep that in mind... Uh, It helps us understand what we're talking about. Um, Just like the book of Genesis is an account of the beginning of all things, God tells us about the beginning of all things. The book of Revelation tells us about the ending of all things, including the church. And uh, we've spent a lot of time studying in the chapters before this about what God is going to do with us, the church, and then what it looks like after we are gone. And as we enter into this transition or we're into the midst of this study of these judgments that are being um, poured out upon the earth, me um, as we study through them on a Sunday morning, we may come to this place of going, what's, what's really the purpose for us as believers? God wants us to know the end of all things, but what's the purpose of, of us knowing what it's going to be like considering you and I have been saved from the judgment of God. All of the judgment that you and I deserved has been poured out upon Jesus Christ, upon the cross. And when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we come under that covering, that new covenant of the, uh, that, that we enter into through the blood of Jesus Christ where we become recipients of God's grace, where we get something we don't deserve. We, re, we re are recipients of God's mercy and kindness and forgiveness. And, and, and so as we look at this, And we see where we're at, and and maybe you're not in that spot this morning. Maybe you haven't given your life to Christ yet. Maybe you haven't uh, fully committed to Him as your Lord. And you're in this place of indecision, or maybe even in a place of rebellion, uh, where you're going, listen, I'm here because someone brought me, or maybe I'm here because I've I've, I've searched for me. Um, I grew up in the church, in the Catholic church, and I knew about these things. I knew about God, but I never had a relationship with God. I never knew what Jesus really did for me on the cross. And so I was in this place of lack of understanding, and perhaps you're in that place also this morning. And when we read through these judgments, you need to understand why they have been put here. And and honestly, it's not so that you would be moved by fear. See, our God is not... Um, the author of fear he's a god of love and even though these things are going to come to pass i'm not going to stand up here this morning and use this chapter as a hell and damnation kind of a sermon that some people may say and say if you don't repent this is what's waiting for you and and that's the truth but those aren't the things these aren't the things that god uses to draw us to himself and we'll talk about more about that at the end of the study But for us who are believers, who who are no longer live with that fear, um, who who live in the love of God and in the joy and the peace that we receive, and, and, and the reasons why we can this morning sing these awesome songs of worship and praise from our heart, because that's truly who our God is in this relationship that we have with him, the application for us is really, I think, best described in Ezekiel chapter 33. So, If you would um, keep your, your hand there in Revelation chapter 9, and maybe turn over to Ezekiel chapter 33 for me. There's a principle here that I want us to glean from this morning, okay? And in verse 1 of Ezekiel chapter 33, Ezekiel is referred to by God as the Son of Man, a prophet to the nation of Israel. And he says here, he says again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, God speaking to Ezekiel, he says, speak to the children of your people. And we know that Ezekiel was an Israelite, he was a Hebrew, and and God was again sending him with a message, and he says this, he he says, speak to the children of your people and say to them, when I bring the sword upon the land... And the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman when he sees the sword coming upon the land. If he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. So Ezekiel's basically telling is is God's telling Ezekiel basically this this truth that was already being applied at this time and 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 but God is taking this this earthly truth this earthly thing that Ezekiel could understand that the children of Israel could understand and he's tying it to a spiritual truth as well. You know, in these days the cities were surrounded by walls, these major metropolitan areas and and even though many people lived outside of the city walls, they lived um uh uh, nearby and there was a watchman who would sit up on the wall to see when danger would come. And if danger was coming, the watchman would blow this, they would sound the trumpet, they would sound the, the horn in such a way that the people within the city and the people guarding the city and those on the edge of the city would have time to retreat into the stronghold and to be saved. And And God's telling Ezekiel, listen, tell the people this and 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 that when they point a watchman and then if they sound the horn, and if you decide to stay out the side of the city, just like some people do today, you know we don't have this, but we, li- we also live in a nation where there's uh, tornadoes and hurricanes and those kinds of things and 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 often warning is given, and lots of people you see it down south they're like, oh, I'm staying here, I've never left this place, I've been here for seventy seven years and 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 you know and it's like and then you see this devastation, and that was their last year because they're gone. Well, they've been warned, and they chose to make the decision to stay, and, and, and ultimately they suffered the consequence. So that's kind of the same thinking that we see here. And so as he goes on in verse 5, he says, And he heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But he who takes warning will save his life. And we know that. That, that makes, makes good sense to us, common sense. He goes on and he says in verse 6, He says, But if the watchman sees the sword coming... And does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not worn, and the sword comes and take any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood I will require of the watchman's hand. So the watchman has a duty. The watchman sees the danger coming he's been he's in a position, he's in a place where he has knowledge of danger coming before it comes, and if he fails in his duty, to let others know of this danger, God says, tell the people I'm going to hold that watchman responsible. And, and that was a common law. These were things that were known. The, the watchman then would be responsible. And so God, God takes this earthly truth and he goes on in verse 7 and he says, So you, son of man, I have made you, and he's speaking to Ezekiel, a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, You shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, He shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. So we see the the earthly example translated to this spiritual um, uh, application for us with Ezekiel and God saying, Ezekiel, I've given you this knowledge. I've given you this information for a purpose, for a reason. And for us as believers, as we study through these things and, and we know that we've been set free from these judgments to come, God, in a sense truly is letting us know about what's coming so that we can warn others, so that we can tell this lost world, those who are still rebelling against God, those who are still ignorant, those who have perhaps still not even been told, that, that, that are, are being deceived and lied to, telling them that, that no danger is coming, don't worry, you're okay, um, all you got to do is this, or, or all these lies that are out today, if we're not the ones that are, that are speaking the truth of the knowledge that we receive then we're failing in the duty that God's called us to do. And so as we study through this this morning, and we see these, truly these, Horrific and terrifying things that are going to be coming. It should prompt us when we understand the love that we have to to, to admonish people not to turn or burn. That's not that's not the, the the direct part of the message, even though that is part of the message. But it's it's turn from the judgments that to come, so that you might receive the love and forgiveness and mercy and grace of God today. He's a heavenly father, and he wants you to become a child of his family. That's the message for us this morning as believers. And so, as we begin, if you want to turn back over to Revelation chapter 9, um, we're going to read through these next two trumpet judgments um, in in our study this morning. And um, as we read through the next two trumpet judgments, what you're going to notice and what I want you to notice is that there's a shift Okay? There's a shift from the first four that we had previously read about um, back in chapter 8. And if you remember, in chapter 8, in total, there's seven. Seven trumpet judgments. In chapter 8, we've read through four. This morning, we're going to study and read through two more. And then there will be yet one to come as we study it out next week. And if you remember, if you were here or if you weren't, you can get a copy of the CD. But I'll just briefly recap it for you. The one we read through, chapter 8. Uh, With the sounding of the first four trumpet judgments, really what we've seen is that the earth itself is targeted, creation is targeted. And yeah, there's an effect upon mankind as a result of it, but the arrows, if you will, of this judgment is directed specifically at the earth. And in that, when the first trumpet judgment is sounded, um, we're told, first of all, that a third of the earth's vegetation is destroyed. All of the earth's vegetation is destroyed, a third of it. And with the sounding of the second trumpet judgment, the earth's oceans are then affected. And I'm just giving you a summarized account here. Um, But it's the earth's oceans that are affected, and the result of that is a death to a third of all the living creatures within the sea. And the destruction, a third of all of the ships that are upon the oceans at that time, all being destroyed. And then with the third trumpet judgment, um, there will be, we're told, a cosmic poisoning uh, to the earth's fresh water supplies. And lastly, when the fourth trumpet judgment sounds, we're told that a third of the earth's light is lost. And this is a light both from the sun of the day and the reflective light uh, uh, that is given by the moon and the stars at night, which results, we're told, in this fourth trumpet judgment, from uh, pollution, a possible pollution, perhaps to the earth's atmosphere that will filter or block out the light, or um, a loss of the light as a result of a disruption to the earth's um, orbit or rotation. We know that these come from meteors and asteroids that are that are striking the earth and if the earth's of uh, the, if the, if the um, Earth's orbit or rotation is disturbed it can cause a shortening of the day and, and and in this sense a third of the light meaning if it was a third of the day then then our 24 hour day would then be reduced to a 16 hour day depending upon the tilt and the rotation of the earth both of those are possible scenarios that are the result of these meteors or asteroids that we're told about that will impact the earth during these trumpet judgments, the first three trumpet judgments. Now, as we continue on, I need to um, point out to you um, that at the end of chapter 8, if you look there at the very last verses, we're told that after the fourth trumpet judgment sounds, there will be an angel who is sent out. And this angel is sent out to deliver a message, literally a warning to the inhabitants of the earth, to those who have already gone through these first four trumpet judgments. And this angel will say to the inhabitants of the earth, literally um, in some translations will read to the earth dwellers, to the inhabitants of the earth, to the earth dwellers, he will say, woe, 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 because of the remaining trumpets of the three angels who are about to sound and by this we know that the remaining three trumpet judgments and the destruction that they will bring is shifted from the previous judgments that were directed at the earth and now these three remaining judgments that are that are also described as woes by the angel they're aimed directly at at those or upon those who dwell upon the earth, the inhabitants of the earth, the earth dwellers. And so we look at these three remaining trumpet judgments, it's important to understand exactly who these people are. And if you remember, when we ended chapter 8, I briefly talked about these people and pointed out that they are simply those who have rejected heaven and those who have rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior in exchange... Okay? They've given up heaven, they've rejected heaven willfully and knowingly, and rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior, willingly and, knowful, and, and, and knowingly for the things of this world. And I say, and at that time I said that these people are really described, they're perfectly described to us in Philippians chapter 3. Not identified necessarily in the context of Philippians, but they're described, uh, these people who reject Christ for the things of this world, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. And in those verses it says this, it says, For many, Paul writing, he says, For many walk of whom I have told you often, and are now telling you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, and who set their mind on earthly things. Now, we need to understand that those who dwell upon the earth at this time are primarily those who have refused to bow their knee and to confess Jesus Christ as their Lord. But more specifically, we see from verse 20 of this chapter, of chapter 9, if you want to look over really quick to verse 20, we see that these woes are poured out upon a demon-worshipping world. Okay? Who are these judgments coming upon? They're coming upon those who worship demons, those who have openly and willingly rejected Jesus Christ for the things of this earth, for the temporal things of this earth that the Bible says are clearly passing away. And the Bible is clear in teaching us that even though there will be some who will choose to follow Jesus during this time, by far the vast majority of the people who dwell upon the earth at this time are open worshipers of demons. They are openly worshiping demons and they will not, we're told, they will not repent of their wicked ways and turn to worship the one true and living God, even at this time. Turn over to to verse chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. In chapter 13 of book of Revelation, uh, verses 1 through 4, it says, John says, And then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and seven horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his head a blasphemous name. And now the beast which I saw, verse 2, was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw on the head as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all of the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the what? The dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him and if you look over back again kind of going backwards a little bit more to revelation chapter 12 verses 7 through 9 in these verses we're we're told exactly who this dragon is and who the inhabitants of the world will be worshiping at this time and it says in verse 7 and war broke out in heaven michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon fought with it and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was there a place found in them or for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out. Who is this great dragon? The serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. And he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Now go back over to verse chapter nine, because with that context we enter into chapter nine, and so we see that Satan with his angels, who we today refer to these angels as demons, they are the ones who are openly and willingly worshiped by most of the inhabitants of the earth at this time. As a matter of fact, they're glory in it. They're bragging it, who can make war against our gods? The dragon and his demon armies and and, and these things. And and it appears that at this time, the worship of Satan will be taking place on two different levels. The first is through the worship of idols. And it's a foolish thing considering we're told clearly that an idol, which is simply something that is crafted by man, made of things like gold, silver, brass, stone, or wood, that they are nothing more than what they are made of. Wood, stone, stone. Brass, gold, silver. And and because of that, they don't have the ability that God has. They cannot see, they cannot hear, they cannot walk. They are an inanimate object. In fact, in Psalm 115 verses 3 through 8, it tells us this saying, But our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. Amen? Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. Now, even though idols are powerless objects, we can all admit that and see that from what Scripture says, that are nothing more than what they are made of. The truth is there is something that can be attached. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter, 9, or chapter 10, verses 19 through 21, points out that in the spiritual realm of things, there is an attachment to these idols that is demonic. And he says, "What?" Am I saying then that an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything? He says, rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you, he's speaking to the Christians in, in Corinth, I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot take partake of the Lord's table and in the table of demons. So, One of the ways that Satan is worshipped today and will be worshipped through the tribulation period that we're reading about here is through idol worship. However, there will also be this unconcealed worship of Satan at this time. And the fact of the matter is, is, it doesn't take much for any of us to realize that this is something that is rapidly taking place among us today. This growing, the open worship of Satan a rapid emergence of this right now through the New Age movement and through the modern pagan and druid and Wiccan teachings and practices of worship. And by the way, if you don't know this, um, that, the, that, that pagan uh, uh, religion of, of Wiccan is, is huge in Fremont County. Huge. And if you ever want to know a little bit more about that, go talk to our police department. And they deal with, with things that are associated with these pagan worship practices that goes on with the Wiccan um, religion or church or whatever you want to call it. It's, it's, it's emerging and it's growing rapidly in the practices of worship along with it. And all these heathen, these heathen religions, they have different varying beliefs and they have different varying false gods that they say that they worship, but they all have two things in common. Okay. This is what connects them all together. The first is that the teaching, the, 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 the first thing that they have in common is, is the teaching that Satan, who they commonly refer to as Lucifer, he's really not a bad guy. He's simply gotten a bad rap by us, the Judeo Christians. We've cast him in this bad light. That's something that brings all these these satanic religions together. Yet the Bible teaches us that this delusion, which does and will lead the inhabitants of the earth to worship Satan, because it's the same lie that will hold true at this time, you know, he's not a bad guy. wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth the truth that they might be saved and for this reason God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie remember please Christians this morning that this knowledge this information is given to us so that we might be a watchman on the wall Because people are being deceived. They are believing the lies. And it's up to us to teach them, to share them, to proclaim the truth. Now, in my opinion, you can take it or leave it. You know how I feel about opinions. They're like armpits. Everybody got them and they they stink. But, you know, just trying to draw some things to a conclusion here. Um, In my opinion, the lie... The lie that is spoken of, because it's spoken as a specific thing in 2 Thessalonians, that that, that they should believe the lie. The the, the lie that is being spoken of here is the second thing, in my opinion, that these false religions, these, these pagan satanic religions that they all have in common. And it's this teaching that we as human beings can be a God, or we can be like God. We don't need Him and I believe this is what Paul's referring to in 2 Thessalonians because this has been the lie of Satan from the very beginning. Has it not? And, and it was this lie, this very lie that Satan pitched to Eve in the Garden of Eden as he tempted Eve into rebelling against God by saying that, that if you eat this forbidden fruit, this fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God said don't do this, that God's just trying to keep you back from something that's good. He doesn't want you to be like Him. And that's the lie that Satan proposed to Eve, that you would be like God. Now the point in these judgments which are to come and will be poured upon... Now the point of all this is that these judgments which are to come that we're going to read about now that will be poured out upon a Satan-loving and demon-worshipping world which God hates. That's the point. It's not arbitrary. It's not random. It's done with intention. It's done with purpose. And as we break down this chapter, it is as if God is saying to these inhabitants, okay? It's as if God is saying this. So, you think you love Satan? You think that you love Satan and you love his demons and you think you want to worship them, then go ahead and have a little bit of a taste of what they're really like. That's what we read about here. And in verse 1 of chapter 9, the Apostle John writes and he says, then... The fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit, and he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, so the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came up from the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. And they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. Has anyone ever been stung by a scorpion here? Yeah? I haven't, but I hear it's very painful. It's much like a burn. And, and it doesn't go away. So, um, not a pleasant thing to say the very least. And in verse 6 it says, In those days men will seek death and they will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee them. The shape of these locusts was like horses prepared for battle and on their head were crowns of something like gold and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair and their teeth were like lion's teeth and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron and the sound of their wings were like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle and they had tails like scorpions and there were stings in their tails there were their their power was to hurt men five months and they had a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit whose name in hebrew is abaddon but in greek He has the name Apollyon. One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. Now, I know I've taken some time to get to this place where we're actually into the text, but um, hopefully you'll see the need for that as we continue on now. And these verses, they first tell us um, who it is that releases these demonic creatures And and they tell us exactly where they are from. Now, the one thing or the one who is described as the star that fell from heaven is, is, is probably Satan. Who in Isaiah chapter 14 is mentioned by name and is described as the one who has fallen from heaven. In Isaiah chapter 14 verse 12, it says this, "'How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning.'" How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. And here in verse 1 of chapter 9, we read that the fallen one, perhaps as we read in Isaiah, Lucifer, Satan, who by the way has no power on his own, at this point he is given the keys, the keys to a bottomless pit, or more specifically an abyss, the abyss, which is also mentioned in other places in scripture with the name of Sheol or Hades. This is what we're talking about. Now, the Bible refers to this place as the place of the dead, a place of torment. And it is where all unbelievers unbelievers today go after they die as a waiting place for the place of judgment, the final judgment. And in light of this, we need to see that Sheol or Hades is not the final place of judgment. It's not the eternal place of death that you and I think of often. The Bible calls that place, that final place of death, that final place of judgment as hell or Gehenna, And it is described in the Bible as a lake of fire. And this lake of fire is described in the Gospels by Jesus himself. Some people go, you only should listen to the words of Jesus. Okay, we'll hear the words of Jesus for you. Jesus says that this place, this final place of eternal death, is a place of lake of fire, a place where the fire cannot be quenched, a furnace of fire where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of darkness, Jesus said, where the worm never dies. And the final place of eternal judgment is also spoken of is a distinct place in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, where John records and he says, and he says, Then I saw a great white throne, and he who sat on it, from whose face of the earth in the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead, all of the dead, were judged according to their works." but the things which were written in the books, by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up their dead or the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to their works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found in the book of life, those were they who were cast into the lake of fire. So, Satan will be given the keys to death and Hades, to this abyss, to the bottomless pit. And from it, we're told, will rise up a thick smoke that will darken the air and block out the sun. And I am sure, as I even read this to you out loud, and I've studied through this, and, and let me tell you, this has been an interesting study because I've done studies and searches on the internet and things that I never want to see. <laughs> and and um, when you begin to study out demonic things and saying I'm not recommending it by any way, but it's, it, it's uneasing it makes me uneasy. I, it, it's, it's a terrifying thing. And I can't imagine being here at this time and seeing this. And certainly it will be a terrifying thing. But even more terrifying than this, than the smoke rising out from the abyss and, 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 and it's blocking out the air and blocking out the sun. and so it's, a, it's, a, it's a polluting effect to the air that's going to make it hard to breathe. Even more terrifying than that is these demonic locust-like creatures that come out from the smoke. Now these creatures are compared to locusts, but it's clear that they are not a literal locust, right? I've never seen a locust like this, nor do I want to see one. And by reading this detailed description, it's apparent that they are calling them locusts in a way that, offers a symbolic representation there. It says, and they have hair like this, and they have tails like this, right? We can read that, that text and understand that there's symbolism going on here in order to paint a picture of something that we've not seen before so that we might understand. And so John tells us that they have body like, bodies like horses, faces like men, heads, and the heads of these demons are crowned and covered with long hair. And they have teeth like a lion, and when they fly, the noise they make is like an army of chariots rushing by. And in light of this obvious symbolism, what we really see here, now don't miss this, this is the main point, we see that this is a powerful army. It's a powerful army that is armed for battle. However, according to verse 4, we see that there. are Restrictions placed on them. They're only given permission to do certain things. They don't have the permission to harm the green things of the earth, like the grass and the trees. And likewise, they're not given permission to touch those who have the seal of God upon their forehead. And this uh, this is is a clear reference to the 144,000 witnesses who have the seal of God placed on their forehead, which is identified for us back in chapter 7. Now, here in verses 4 through 6, if you look there with me, we are told the purpose of these demonic creatures. And the purpose of these demonic creatures' release is to bring torment. They're not killers. Their their sole purpose is to bring a painful torment upon the men and the women of the earth, the inhabitants of the earth, the earth dwellers, those who have chosen to openly worship Satan and the demons that follow after him. Again, it's like God is saying, you like demons? Okay, you want to worship them? Okay, see what they're like. And when these demons come to the inhabitants of the earth who have chosen to worship them, they come with this weapon, a stinger that's at the end of their scorpion-like tail, and we read that when a person is stung, it results in this physical torment that cannot be escaped. Now, I've burned myself before, a couple of times, really good or really bad. And the thing about a burn, unlike a cut, you can cut yourself or you can stub your toe and you can even break a bone. But you know what? It's pretty quickly the pain goes away, that, that initial pain. When you get a burn, it lasts a long time and it goes on and on and on and on. That's the idea behind it, a physical torment that cannot be escaped. And in fact, here's the creepy thing. As a result of the painful sting, people will even want to die in order to escape the pain, figuring that death has got to be the better option. But God will not permit it. And we are told that even though they will seek death, they will not be able to find it. Now, what do you think that means? Think about that. They will seek death, but they will not be able to find it. Meaning they will try to take their own lives. And they will try to do things that will normally bring death. Perhaps they'll jump from buildings. Perhaps they'll jump in front of cars. Perhaps they'll try to uh, 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 shoot themselves. I don't know. But they will do things that will normally try to bring death, but yet they will live on. In other words, this is what it really means. The soul, the very soul of these people will not depart from their bodies even though their, their bodies will have this, this, this physical death to it. Their, their soul will not be able to be released from their bodies and, 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 and their body will really, literally become a, a prison for them. A prison, and this torment will last for five long, horrifying months. And like Richard just said, I don't know about you, but in one sense, this sounds like it might be the zombie apocalypse that the world is so enamored with today. And I'm not trying to make any kind of connection but in that, but I mean, is not the world just infatuated with that? Well, here's the deal. Who knows about what else is coming? Satan. I mean, it just all... and was it, Who was infatuated with zombies 20 years ago? I, I don't think I even heard of them. You know? But now it's like on... on, on There's bumper stickers. We in our own city are having a zombie run on, on, on the 31st where you can run down the river walk and a 5K race and have zombies, people dressed up as zombies, jumping out and try to get you. It's, it's being turned into a joke. This, my friends, is no joke. It's a horrifying thing that will last for five months. And in one sense, we see this. Now, here's, if this is not enough, turn over to Joel chapter 2. I've told you before that this book is a very Jewish book. And these things that are written of and spoken of here and foretold of as the end of all things, they are spoken of and told of all throughout the Old Testament. And in Joel chapter 2, this event is accounted for in further detail. And frankly, the attack and pursuit of these demons in the in, after the inhabitants of the earth, it's a frightening thing. It's not like they just come in an arty and there's a battle and it's like, yeah, we're going to battle against these demonic things. No, people are running and fleeing and hiding and these things are chasing after. After them. In Joel chapter 2, verses, starting in verse 4 in, in through 11, it says, Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. How do they run? They run like swift steeds, so they run. With a noise like chariots over mountaintops they leap, like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like, the strong, like a strong people set in battle array. Before them the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like mighty men of war. Everyone marches in formation, and they do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column, and though they lunge between weapons, they are not cut down. They run to and fro in the cities. They run on the walls. Ooh. They climb into the houses, they enter at the windows like a thief, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grows dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for strong is the one who executes his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? I mean, that's more scary than any horror flick you could ever go see. And in light of this, this is what I want to reiterate to you. That even though the fallen one is given the keys in verse 1 to release these demonic creatures, and even though verse 11 tells us that Satan, the, 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 the dragon, is their, is their king, it's made clear to us by what we read here in Joel that all of this is allowed for and ordained by God before we move on, I want to point out that John is detailing these things. Listen, John is detailing these things in order that you and I might get a glimpse. That we might get a realistic glimpse of the horror of this coming judgment. And to think that this is just the first of three woes. And in light of this, we see how much better it is to know Jesus today and to know that we're going to escape the wrath that is to come. In verse 13, we go on, and it says, In the sixth angel, then, verse 13, the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for this hour and day and month and year, were released to kill a third of mankind. Now the number of the army of this horsemen was 200 million, and I heard the number of them, and thus I saw the horses in the vision those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red hyacinth blue and sulfur yellow and their heads and the heads of the horse were like the heads of lions and out of their mouth came fire smoke and brimstone and listen and by these three plagues a third of the mankind a third of mankind was killed what are the plagues the fire the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouth For their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. But the rest of mankind, here's the key, it's amazing. But the rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hand that they should not worship demons. It reminds me a little bit of Pharaoh. You remember the story with Pharaoh and and Moses. And there's these plagues that are sent upon Egypt so that Pharaoh might know that God is God. And one of the plagues is the plagues of um, frogs. And and these frogs, thousands and thousands and millions of frogs come out upon um, the land and into the beds and into the, the cooking pots, what we're told, everywhere. I mean, you couldn't escape them. And so finally, Pharaoh calls Moses to himself. Enough, enough. Tell God to relent and I will let your people go. And, Pharaoh's all, and Moses is like, okay. Sounds good. When do you want me to have these frogs? When do you want me to tell God to, to have these frogs removed? You know what Pharaoh says? He says, tomorrow. Go read it. He says, Tomorrow. And because in the the there even though it was a despised and awful situation, um, there was a certain amount of his flesh involved in that. The frog was seen as a as a as a sacred thing, as a as a god to the Hebrew or to the to the Egyptian people. And even though Pharaoh, his his, his mind was on earthly things, his belly was his god, and and that's the deception that people fall on. You know, it's like. You know, I remember when I was giving my life to Christ and turning away from drugs and alcohol. It didn't happen like that for me. There was times when I went back to smoking pot, times when I went back to doing drugs, times when I went back like a dog that returns to its vomit and eats it up going, oh, yum, I want more. And these people are described like that. Rather than turning to the Lord, it says that they should not turn from God, that they should turn to worshiping demons and idols and silver, gold, silver, and brass and stone, which cannot walk, neither can hear or walk. And they did not repent of their murders, of their sorceries, or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. There's a key in here that I'm going to close this out with here in just a few minutes. But what we read here is there's a second, there's a second of the three woes that are being spoken and warned about or excuse me this is the second of the three woes that are that are spoken of warned about back in chapter 8 verse 13 and with this trumpet being sounded John tells us he heard a voice coming from the golden altar of incense again this is a key it's a it's something that should connect in our mind back to what we already read and go oh yeah and 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 um When these judgments began, if you remember, there was an an angel back in Revelation chapter 8, verses 3 through 5, that was offering up incense and offering up the prayers of the martyred saints on this altar, and they were rising up before God. And now, from the same altar where the prayers of the martyred saints are being offered up, along with incense, From that same altar, we see that a voice speaks, a voice speaking, a commanding voice, commanding the four angels that have been bound in the river Euphrates to be set free. And in light of this, we're once again given a picture of how God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And we see that here because we, again, as this reference to the altar and the voice coming from it, and we know what's going on in all the altar, we see that God is being moved to judgment. Move to judge here now for the sake of righteousness. Here now move to judge for the sake of justice. And we must keep this in mind because even though our God is a merciful God who pours out His loving kindness on the just and at this time on the unjust all alike, He is also a just judge who must take action and He will come against everyone at a time in the future everyone who will not accept his son Jesus Christ and will not accept that gracious and merciful forgiveness that he is extending to them that comes through Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross so with the sounding of the sixth trumpet and the sixth woe another wave of judgment is for angels that have been bound are released and clearly these angels they are also part of Satan's demonic army considering no angel of God would be bound like this. Remember in Jude chapter, or Jude, excuse me, verse 6, we are told that very specifically that there are angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their abode. And he says there that God has reserved these rebellious angels in an everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And I don't have a good explanation for why these angels are bound at the Euphrates River. I don't know we can speculate. But there are some interesting things about the Euphrates River that can cause us to speculate. First of all, the Euphrates River has always held a notable place in history. The book of Genesis tells us that it flowed out from the Garden of Eden, where all things began. And so it makes some sense that it will figure in with the events that are part of the end of all things. It was there at the beginning. Secondly, we know that Babylon was situated on the Euphrates River. And the revived Babylonian Empire, which the Antichrist and Satan will come with against Jesus Christ, is pictured through the book of Revelation as the empire of the Antichrist. Also, in Genesis chapter 15, when God told Abraham that the land of his descendants would possess, or that uh, told Abraham of the land his descendants would possess, God said that it would stretch from the Nile River in Egypt eastward to the Euphrates River. Furthermore, in ancient times, the Euphrates River was always considered to be the east-west division of the world. It's significant. And in Revelation chapter 16, listen, we read that this river, which has flowed since the beginning of time, that's what we're told, this river has flowed since the beginning of time. And it has flowed some 1,700 miles from the Taurus Mountains, which is in the modern-day Turkey, to join up with the Tigris River right before it dumps into the Persian Gulf. We're told in Revelation chapter 17 that this ancient river will dry up in these end days, in these end times, allowing for the armies of the east to gather in the plains below the mountain of Mejigo, where the Battle of Armageddon will take place. Well, would you believe that scientists today have begun to confirm what the Bible has already prophesied? This seemingly impossible event of the Euphrates River drying up? It feeds the fertile crescent that we, where it says all life began, scientists will tell us. In fact, recent studies from NASA, from NASA scientists, they have reported that the Fertile Crescent region in the Middle East is losing fresh water now at a rapid rate that cannot be replaced. And in these reports, they say that the water flow in the in the important they say, Euphrates and Tigris rivers, both of these have decreased as a result of. Of this trend, and as a result of this trend, much of the land that was once used and suitable for farming has become an arid wasteland, cracked and dried. As a matter of fact, one of the things that I, that I read that was really scary is that with the Euphrates River drying up, you know what's happening is that these these snakes that that lived in that river they're running out of places. So they're coming out of the, the rivers and they're attacking people. Go read it; it's really creepy. Anyway, they say that the Tigris and Euphrates rivers are drying up and these are the very rivers that once held a crucial part of the cradle of civilization in ancient Mesopotamia, they say, for thousands of years. The decrease in the water has primarily resulted from a major drought that began in 2007 and the loss of the snowpack in the mountains to the north. And as a matter of fact, you can go to NASA's website and they have uh, imagery there of this area. And the image map From NASA Goddard Space Flight Center and the National Center for Atmospheric Research shows the vast decrease of freshwater in 2008, which continues today, and they say that the loss has occurred over the last decade and it amounts to this, 144 cubic kilometers of water from these ancient river basins, which include vast areas reaching into Turkey, Syria, Iraq, and Iran. Now, I tried to do the the, 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 the mathematical figuration of how much gallons are in a, in a cubic kilometer of water, and all, all I can tell you, it's like this ginormous number with this like power to the 14th. I don't even know what that means. But it is a lot of water, and it's, the rivers are drying up there. Just like the Bible said, it will happen in order for these armies to come down. It's pretty amazing that exactly what the Bible says will happen is happening. Guys, it's signs for us and truth for us that we are living in these last days and the Lord is coming back really, really, really soon. Now, we know that these angels are bound today and they're waiting for a specific hour, a specific day, and a specific month, and a specific year, we're told, that has been set forth by God. In other words, it's ordained, And it's ordained in order to carry out the task of killing one-thirds of the earth's population. And if you remember from Revelation chapter 6, verse 8, that already by this time, one-fourth of the the population of the earth will already have been killed. So if we take one-fourth of the earth's population spoken of back in in chapter 6, and another-third of the earth's population mentioned here, it makes a grand total of over half of the earth's population that will have been killed after this army of demons gets done. As the worship team can come up, I want to close with this. Let me say this to you. This is the balance, okay? It is not the judgment of God that leads us to repentance, That's clear from what we even read here at the end of this chapter. It is not the judgment of God or the fear of the judgment of God that leads men to repentance. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that it's God's loving kindness that leads us to repentance. In Romans chapter 2, verses 4-7, through seven, it says, Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that it is the goodness of God that leads you to repentance, but in accordance with the hardness, with, with your hardness and your unrepentant heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good, seek honor and glory and immortality. Now, I want to I wanna encourage you with this. I've written in my Bible, in the very first page where there's nothing and there's nothing else there. And, and, and it's, it's something that, I'll tell you what it says in a minute, but um, it, it was something that God showed me in a unique place, in a unique situation that has impacted my life in ways that I can't describe. And it was only um, about a year ago that I came across this. Um, in Uganda, in Jinja, where we have missionaries, they have a ministry there where they go into five different prisons in Uganda. One of the prisons there is called Jinja Remand. And Jinja Remand is a men's prison that is it's, it's a horrific place to be not only because of the condition of the facilities and the care that's given there while these men are in prison, but because this place is a place of hopelessness, utter hopelessness. It's a place of despair that um, I hope none of us ever, ever, ever have to experience. Here's the reason why. Because in Jinja, in Uganda, when if you're, if you're accused of a crime, you are arrested and you are guilty until you are proven innocent. And, and when you are arrested, you are placed in this prison until you go to court. And going to court and getting your day in court in the Uganda prison system can take up to seven years. Most people, to be fair, it's two to five, but it, it, it can go as long as seven years. So you have men, literally thousands of men in this prison who have been convicted by crimes that may very well have been innocent or don't even know how long, if they are guilty and they know they're guilty, they don't know how long it will be before they even are set free because they haven't been sentenced. It's a desperate place. And it's one of the places that we go to and do church ministry there. It's a um, dilapidated place. It's run down. The government does have the money to provide for facilities, much less clothing and food. These guys get one meal a day if they're lucky. And they all wear these orange or these yellow shorts and these yellow um, shirts that that are, are provided maybe once a year. And if they they're they're and they're tattered. And and the only way that these men get any kind of care or clothing outside of that is if someone on the outside brings it in to them. Well, in this place, there's uh if you take maybe a, a quarter of our room, a third of our room, there's a, a, a concrete walled area with a roof that's opened up on one side where they allow for us to do church service with some of the men in this facility. And... um the one wall is open up to the to the open courtyard. Most of this prison is all in an open area, and you see the men out there just laying and sitting in the grass mostly is what they do for the day, and the dirt and the grass not really grass. It's more so dirt. But we get to have church service, and we sing praises, and we sing worship, and we get to teach them the Word of God. And, and that happens, um, I think they do that two times a week in that one spot. Yeah. And there's five other prisons that they go to, and... Um, I paint that because that picture for you because in this prison, on the one wall opposite of the opening area into the courtyard, is, is like scraped into the wall is what I've written down in my Bible. And it's a message of hope. And scraped into this wall in this church, it really is a church, scraped in this wall is this. The downfall of man does not mean his end. The downfall of man does not mean his end. And I know that that is a word for us this morning. That our downfall, our sin, our shortcoming, our failures, our rebellion, our lack of ability to do what we know is right, much less what what God says is right in these things. Our inability and our failure to do that does not mean our end. And that is a message of hope in a very hopeless place that people there can glean onto. Because the truth is, is that Jesus Christ is, is a, is, is, is a God who loves us, forgives us, and He Himself is willing to take our downfall, our sin, our failures upon Himself so that the Bible says that we might become the righteousness of God and have a new life in Him and become new creations in Christ Jesus through the working of the Holy Spirit. There is still hope. But once we get to this time and this place, Very, very little. So I encourage you this morning, if you're in that place where you're feeling overwhelmed by yourself, by your failures, by your faults, to remember that your downfall does not mean the end. That you have a Redeemer, you have a Savior who died for you, who loves you, who wants to be in a relationship with you, who gives you this hope of eternal life, a place where there's joy and peace, that you may escape, that we may escape what we deserve. Father, thank you, God.